From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. We want to be really aware that stories are dangerous, that stories can be deeply damaging, and that narratives don't just have to be true, they can also be false. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. Today, we're bringing you a session from the 2018 Third Coast Conference, an annual gathering of radio and podcast makers from around the world. The work we do has the power to illuminate, but it also has the very dangerous power to be propaganda, even when we don't know it. And that's what we're trying to kind of shine a light on and make ourselves more aware of today. This session was called All Stories Are Stories About Power, even as you'll hear a story about Dunkin' Donuts. The lens through which a reporter sees the world inevitably affects their reporting, no matter how neutral they try and be. And reporters, editors, publishers, and other higher-ups settle into a framework of news and information, what to cover, how to cover it, how much airtime to give it, that they believe to be fair and unbiased. But is that even possible? And if not, where are we getting it wrong? This session, presented by Chenjirai Kumanika and Sanja Dirks, questions our assumptions and breaks open some long-held notions about power and bias in storytelling. Chenjirai is the co-host of the podcast Uncivil, a consultant on the series Seeing White, and an assistant professor at Rutgers University. And Sanja is a reporter focusing on equity, identity, and culture at KQED in San Francisco. Together, they blew the doors off traditional journalistic assumptions, leading the session with a story that seems, at least at first glance, pretty inconsequential. But dig deeper, and you'll find all stories are stories about power. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. For breakfast food lovers, this is an outrage. First, International House of Pancakes temporarily became International House of Burgers. Now our friends at WGBH bring terrifying news. Dunkin' Donuts is embracing its experiment with dropping the word donuts. They say they're not anti-donut, just pro-coffee. So starting in January 2019, the store will just be called Dunkin'. Now it's time for the hard question. Dunkin' what? It's Morning Edition. This panel is called All Stories Are About Power, and we, were, we kind of figured, you know, we would try to challenge ourselves <laughs> on, on that note. What's up, y'all? How you doing? My name is Chinjirai Kumanika, and I teach in the Rutgers Department of Journalism and Media Studies. I'm also co-host, co-creator of Uncivil, and contributor to Seeing White. And uh, I just want to start out by saying, you know, I am so, this is my first Third Coast, so really excited to be a part of this community. Um, especially because I, you know, I just, you know, when it comes to journalism, I feel like I'm very much still in my learning process. And I've learned so much from you, from the people in this room, you know, and from people who are just really putting their hard work. And that's important when we're talking about a panel like this, because there's a way where it can come off like, you know, in a way that's not appreciative, right? And I'm deeply grateful and appreciative. And I also wanna just set it off by talking about the moment that we're in, you know? Um, in Canada, people are much better about, first of all, recognizing what land we're on, 
You know, we're on indigenous land. They start off everything that way. Every time you say the word Illinois and all those kind of things, you should be thinking about that and the many other um, nations that were here. So I want to start off on that recognition. I don't have any smudge or anything like that, but you could get, we feel to get, we get the feeling. Also, I want to say that, you know, I'm glad that we got some kind of, there was some kind of accountability in relation to the Laquan McDonald case, you know. But a friend of mine said, yeah, I'm so glad we got justice. And I'm like, ah, you know, be careful when you use that word. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we're ready to start imagining what justice would look like. So I just want to say that. And of course, we have this, this Kavanaugh thing, right? Maybe adding a second likely sexual assaulter to our Supreme Court. So I just say that because this is the environment we're in, and it's a traumatic one. And so we wanted to really bring a spirit of love to this. And I wanted to just have love and appreciation for, the, for all of us who, in a lot of ways, are on the front lines of having to face and report and translate this. So I just wanted to start it off on that note. Hello, everybody. My name is Sandia. I'm a station reporter at KQED. So I know about taking a lot of these things and trying to make them work in four-minute stories, 45-second stories, and sometimes when I'm lucky, something longer. And I am still learning. Um, I am still in this process. I have learned so much in my discussions with Chen Jirai. I feel incredibly lucky, and you are incredibly lucky to be in a room with him. This is going to be awesome. Um, I first of all wanted to ask, because we play that clip about Dunkin' Donuts, right? Like, does anybody have any idea how that might be actually a story that is a story about power? Yeah. That it's even a story that dumping, it's highly promotional whether or not the person is intending or not, and they are privileged to have that intention. So it, it's, yes. it's, it's, an, it's an advertisement, right? It's a, it's a corporate advertisement. There's a name change, and we give more promotion to that because it's, a, you know, an institution. Um, there's some other reasons, too, as well. Uh, you know, Duncan dropping off the donuts kind of signals that they're moving into beverages, which kind of signals that they're moving into competing with places like Starbucks. And here's where that gets political. I mean, one thing that some of you may know is that Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts have very different political def demographics, with Dunkin' Donuts appealing to much older and more conservative folks as well, right? And one of the ways that that winds up mattering is that, and by the way, I just want to say, like, this might be my new podcast, like how I make, ruin everything and make it racial. Because <laughs> I literally, I started this out, I was like, yo, what could not be political? I love, I love donut, you know what I mean? So I was like, <laughs> so I was like, you know, but, but there, was a, there was an instance of a Dunkin' Donut a store that posted a sign inside of it. its manager posted something inside warning its employees to not speak Spanish. Now, why does some anecdotal one Dunkin' Donut among the thousands matter? Because of how corporate responded, right? Corporate defended that and said, well, they're just trying to like, do something appropriate for their customer base, right? Which is, of course, very different than the way Starbucks responds. So a story that is just about a place trying to compete for revenue share is actually a story about politics. Um, and our argument is that all stories are stories about power. Um, one of the things that we want to say from the very beginning is because we are still in the process of learning about how to do the kind of analysis we're going to present today, um, we want you to be part of this conversation. So feel free to ask questions, pipe in. This is, this is not a, a, a lecture. 
This is not a sermon. This is a discussion, and you are all part of it. So, you know, feel free to pipe in. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask in this room is, who here considers themselves a storyteller? All right. I love it. How many, how many people in this room consider themselves people whose work is about narrative? And those are wonderful, wonderful things. But we also want to be really aware that stories are dangerous, that stories can be deeply damaging, and that narratives don't just have to be true. They can also be false. And so the work we do has the power to illuminate, but it also has the very dangerous power to be propaganda, even when we don't know it. And that's what we're trying to kind of shine a light on and make ourselves more aware of today. Absolutely. And yo, let me just say, since I have this, can, can we just give another big hand for Sanja Dirks? Anybody listen to American Suburb? Yo. Put American Suburb on the top of your thousand podcasts I need to listen to lists. And so when we think about what are these dangers of narrative, as my friend Avi Lewis calls it, the tyranny of narrative, there's two possible things that we want to focus on that are like pitfalls, two kinds of things. One is the myth that there are stories that are not political, that don't have political dimensions, right? And that's, that's one way we become vulnerable, right? As we are working on our stories is if we just kind of des bracket something out, well, this isn't political. This isn't big ideas. This is just a small thing, right? Because, and I, I just want to say, like, I'm a journalist, but in my other job, I studied critical media theory and critical theory, so I'm kind of like a philosopher. And so I do, one thing I do understand is that power is always present. You're always commenting on power in one way, right? And so that's the first pitfall that we want to avoid, which means that we kind of need to scrutinize stories like a Dunkin' Donuts story, right, that seems like it doesn't have political dimensions, and ask how it might be political and how we could shift even a short reporting thing. The second thing is this idea of stories that we know are political, right, but the ways that they're being covered is not sufficient, right? We're, we're picking out particular layers. And so we're, like, I, and I just wanna be clear, like, we wanna draw on the collective expertise as we're all solving this problem. And I just also want, I, I wanna keep saying this, there's so many examples of good work, which we're gonna refer to here, where people have kinda like solved it in this one story, you know? And so I wanna just lift that up. But we're gonna offer a way to think about this a little bit more systematically we wanted to think about a slightly different model, um, a model that looks at the way narrative and stories happen. And a lot of stories are way into a lot of stories. We know as storytellers, is personal, right? What's like the first rule of storytelling? Find a character. That's sort of gospel. And you find that character and you tell a personal story because that's how we find a doorway into other people's experiences. That's how we sort of get that emotional investment which takes us into the sort of deeper analysis. This is, this is gospel, right? Um, one of the things we, want, we wanted to talk about was the personal and some of the traps within that because there's some dangers when you tell a personal story. Some of those dangers are, you know, the quirky or exceptional story. We've all heard that story about somebody who's, you know, got something different about them or a different life experience or something that's sort of exceptional and their story gets told. And that's amazing. We need to have exceptional stories. We need to have quirky stories. That's why, that's why people take our pitches. I mean, um, but it's also 
got some traps to it that we can fall into when we see things as exceptional, when we see things as quirky. I'm gonna play you, oh, there we go. I'm gonna call myself out for doing this, um, play you a little bit of a story. We all know the neighbor who goes a little bit overboard with the Christmas lights display. Well, we now take you to a perfectly manicured street in Palm Springs, where artist Kenny Irwin has taken holiday decorations to a new extreme. Sandia Dirks of member station KPBS has this tour of a post-apocalyptic fantasy land. Walk into Kenny Irwin's winter wonderland and you soon recognize... It's not like anything you've ever seen before. Here is uh, Santa's battle wagon, complete with 12 uh, highly advanced robotic deer. And the reason why it has to use 12 deer instead of 9 is because it's a much heavier model of sleigh, and it's battle armored. So this is for everyone that's been on Santa's naughty list. And if you're on Santa's nice list? If you're on his nice list... And whatever you put on your list, no matter what, you're going to be getting a pink robot, whether you like it or not. Because in this world, in this story, Santa only gives robots to all the kids. <laughs> only pink robots. The world Irwin has created fills the grounds of his childhood home. Two acres in which he has built colored statues of robots, aliens, and robo-Santas out of trash. He's bolted together microwaves, tennis rackets, and armchairs to create 30-foot-tall robots. And he's painted them in vibrant colors, like on what used to be the home's tennis court. This is Santa's elf village here. And basically, you got post-apocalyptic, extraterrestrial, nuclear elves down here. It's like slight Donnie Darko meets, you know, Transformers meets, you know... Santa Claus. Santa Claus. A little bit of color and a lot of love. Courtney Scott is visiting from Montana. She says she didn't expect to find something like this in Palm Springs. It's a city better known for golf courses and mid-century modern homes. And you wouldn't necessarily expect Irwin to be the creator of this Christmas spectacle. It's not even his holiday. He's Muslim. I don't believe in the principles of Christmas, but I, I, love, I believe in the creativity that springs out of, uh, out of the holiday, which has nothing to do with Christmas itself. I just love the colors and the glows and the lights and, and all the funny characters and everything. Characters like a giant robot with a working microwave for a heart and a casino slot machine for a brain. Or Santas who ski down palm trees rather than snowy mountains. As Irwin says, this is the desert after all. Okay, so that's obviously a quirky, funny story, and I pitched it to NPR, and they took it. But it also falls into some traps, because there's some context there you're not getting, right? This is this guy, grown man, lives with his father, who has a lot of money, um, and has a lot of property, allows his son to sort of create these fantasy worlds, escape into them, possibly. There's also some other things going on here underneath the surface. Kenny is, although he was raised Christian, converted to Islam. So much is happening, and yet we focus, I focused, on the quirky or the exceptional, which really leaves out a lot of the more interesting, problematic, and power dynamics of the story. So that is one major trap of you know, the personal story. And you know, I just want to say, we live in a world that has a dominant ideological idea. I mean, there's, you know, billions of us, we all think differently, but there are some dominant ideological ideas. And the dominant way of knowing the world is personal and psychological. So one way to think about this is, for example, the way we think about police, right? 
police and our dominant ideology, everything is about the individual police officer. What is in this, this person's mind, their attitudes. It's also how we think about racism, and we talked about this a lot on Seeing White, right? So by default, you're always in the personal, right? That's where you are, that's where you're gonna be unless you're actively resisting this, right? And I wanna be clear, right? Like, the personal is important. This is not to debunk the per like, don't ever, let's nobody tell personal story. That is not, don't, please don't tell people that's what Chinjara left here is telling you. <laughs> Somebody's gonna say that. What I'm saying is that the personal is always situated in a, in a larger context. So with that police officer, right, certainly the attitudes of the police officer are a problem, you know, or a thing to be scrutinized. We want folks to have good attitudes and like not be bigots and not be like, you know. But obviously there's also other dynamics, right, where they get left out and that's where we try to bring in these, these cultural layers, right? I just want to mention two more sort of traps that are within the personal. And one of them is this sort of the primacy of psychology, right? There's a lot of kind of work that's done or, you know, think about a TED talk where it's like you're thinking this way. If you just thought this way, you could change your mind. But the amount of privilege it takes to be able to just think your way out of a problem is staggering because we live within systems and structures. So this primacy of psychology, this idea that we can think through things and we can think ourselves into change is a dangerous trap. It also happens in podcasts when they tell a story like that. Right? And we've all heard those podcasts that sort of work in that way. Here's a new fact. This is going to inform you and change you. Again, we're not saying throw out facts, and we're not saying facts can't inform you or change you. We're saying that that narrative is problematic and needs to be questioned. The final one is the empathy trap. And I, I want to be careful with this one because I heard somebody saying, in I heard someone mentioning the empathy trap, and somebody saying, oh, no, we, sh we need to have empathy. I am not saying don't have empathy. Let's have empathy. It's one of the most important ways in which we can connect to each other. But it's also a trap because it tells us that I can feel what you are feeling, that I, in my experience, know what it is to be a black woman, and I don't. And empathy can convince us that I can bridge that gap. But my own privilege, my nexus of experience, tells me I can't. And so be careful when we use empathy because it can lull us into a false sense of security, because it's what we want, right? We want to be able to empathize with other people to reach into their lives. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna play another example here of, a, of what I would call the empathy trap. It's Friday and time for StoryCorps. Today, the launch of a new project. It is called One Small Step, and it's an effort to bring together Americans with differing political views. After the 2016 election, Joseph Widenecht went to a Trump protest in Austin. He showed up with pro-Trump signs and a Make America Great Again hat. Amina Amdeen, a Muslim student at the University of Texas, was one of the anti-Trump marchers. They came to StoryCorps to remember the moment that brought them together. I noticed you with the hat. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that you were surrounded by some people. And I noticed that they were being kind of threatening. I heard a click of a lighter right behind my ear. And there were about three people trying to light my shirt on fire with lighters. And then somebody snatched your head off your head. And that's the point where I, something kind of snapped inside me because <laughs> I wear a, um, a Muslim hijab. And I've been in situations where people have tried to snatch it off my head. Wow. And I rushed towards you and I just started screaming, leave him alone, give me that back. I don't think we could be any further apart 
as people. And yet it was just kind of like this common, that's not okay moment. So I want to say, first of all, I love StoryCorps. Like their stories make me cry and so many of them are amazing. So this is not- Love the StoryCorps. This is not to drag StoryCorps. But that story tells us that those two people can find each other without any discussion of anything else that is happening underneath the surface. That her experience as a Muslim woman, a hijabi in this country, is somewhat similar to his experience as a white male Trump supporter. And that is dangerous. There's something else going on in the story that's about that second level, outside of personal, that's about cultural. So as storytellers, right, we've got our character, right? We found our personal angle. We've interviewed somebody, we're in that. Now we're like wanting to take it to that next level. It's like, you know, I want to, I realize like I'm, I'm looking at this police officer, right? I realize actually we can't find all the answers in this person's mind with psychology. And let me just do a brief, I don't want to go too professionally on you, but there's a reason why psychological mode is the way we think. And that's because the people who have shaped research methods were people who were dealing with industry and they wanted way, they wanted modes of epistemology that would enable them to be able to shape and manipulate the world and not have to deal with history, right? and all those other kinds of things. So history, and it's really radical feminist studies that brought other kinds of knowledge making into even in the, the academy, right, about how we know the world. So there's a reason and an agenda at work when all this psychology is the only way we understand things. So let's say you know that, and you're like, I wanna take it deeper. You go to the cultural level. Ah, oh, there's a culture in the police department. Oh, they have language, they have their own language, they have their own symbols, they get tattoos, wild west, white supremacist, there's a, that's cultural, right? And that's good, it's good to raise it to the cultural things. But one of the reasons why this matters is because it's actually, it has to do with the solutions, right? So at the personal level, all the solutions to everything become about training. We're gonna train, right? And then like the cultural is like, we're gonna dialogue, we're gonna train all men out of patriarchy, right? Each individual man, right? We're gonna, and all those kinds of things, right? And it's like, you know, at the cultural level, you get stories that are kind of like, hey, I'm looking at this, this like athletic team and I find that they have a real issue with like sexual assault. And you know, but, but also maybe let's just look at, you know, men and women are different. They have different cultures. Women like to knit, you know, and men like to play football and break things. So maybe if we just have the men and women come together and like a, maybe the male knitting thing, we'll fix all the sexual assault that way, right? Maybe if I just eat with Muslims, you know what I'm saying? I can solve all the problems there. And you're dealing with a culture where people want that to be the solution. A certain section of people don't want to have to face structures, right? We want to like maybe think, maybe if we just eat and hug folks, we can fix everything. We can fix everything. We should eat and hug folks, by the way. I'm all for that. <laughs> Clearly, again, you know, so. so. <laughs> don't ruin eating and hugging yeah, people. Yeah, right. Those <laughs> are two of my and favorite donuts. things. Um, you know, I have, an, I have examples of this in terms of I've covered police a lot. Anyone heard of the Oakland Police Department? Um, so <laughs> I've covered, uh, you know, Oakland police, I've covered the cop on the beat, the individual guy, what he goes through in his, his struggle. And then a couple years ago, we had this major scandal, might have heard of it, um, where uh, Oakland police officers had sexually assaulted, raped an underage girl. Um, and they were, you know, sort of held accountable, kind of, in a, that nobody got um, actually prosecuted uh, kind of way. But one of the things that happened is, is people started talking about the culture of the police department. The mayor of Oakland said to us, 
there is a toxic macho culture. And there is, but there's a reason for that. And unless you go back and look at the history of police, and understand how policing came to be in America, and understand how it was based on slave catching, you can't get to the point where you cr can critique the culture of today's police, because you are literally occluding hundreds of years of history that built this. You can look at the tip of the iceberg, but if you don't understand how much ice is beneath that, we are going to Titanic. So just to review, we're all about the personal. That's important. It's a necessary, essential device for our storytelling. The cultural level is an area that we have to consider because we're always commenting on that one way or another, right? Um, but we got to get to the structural. And I want to play an example. I want to beat up on my own work a little bit, if I can, real quick. Um, so it's a story I did that I talked about voices. And this was an effort where I was trying to bridge. I was trying to, like look at a cultural problem, right, that had to do with voices and shared understandings of voices. And I, and I kind of feel that in a way, well, I, this piece was like helpful and I was proud of it. And I just, I have to also shout out NPR who really supported me in making this piece. They took my critique and welcomed it in and mentored me, right, For, you know. I, I think I fell short of that structural level. So let's listen. This conversation about the sound of public radio caught our attention. What do you hear the voices of those Journalists, what do you hear? I hear um, middle-aged white dudes who sound like they just drank some really warm coffee. That's A.D. Carson talking with his friend Chenjirai Kumanyika. Kumanyika loves public radio. Carson, not so much. Like, it, it sounds like the whole joint is, is, is recorded in the back of Barnes & Noble. That exchange was part of an essay Kumanyika posted this month on the public radio website Transom. It was called Vocal Color in Public Radio. We invited him to share his thoughts and tell us about his experience last summer at a Transom workshop when he got a turn at the microphone. My piece was about a fisherman who manages the tuna club of Avalon. But while editing my script aloud, I realized I was also imagining another voice, one that sounded more white, saying my piece. Without being directly told, people like me learn that our way of speaking isn't professional, and you start to imitate the standard or even hide the distinctive features of your own voice. This is one of the reasons that some of my black and brown friends refuse to listen to some of my favorite radio shows, despite my most passionate efforts. This really affected me as I was producing my transom piece. Sometimes I speak in the voice I'm using right now, but as a hip-hop artist, I use a very different voice. Check out this verse I wrote right after I found out that no one would be indicted for Eric Garner's death. I can't breathe, hear my brother dying. Every day another name, another mother crying, oh Lord. Now so the question is, how can I bring that kind of voice into my efforts as a radio producer, right? Now compare that to how I sounded on my first piece for the Transom Workshop. For John, losing a fish is no small thing. Because John is a fisherman with a capital F. Fisherman with a capital F. What does that even mean? So what bothers me most is the way I'm inhabiting my own personality. My voice sounds too high and all the rounded corners of my slang are squared off. It's like I don't even recognize myself. It's like, who am I? Well, just as an experiment, I re-recorded part of that piece to see how a relaxed, sort of less code switch style of narration might sound. You see, what you might not understand is that for John, losing a fish is no small thing. John is a real fisherman. I mean, this guy's caught hundreds of fish in his lifetime. And I'm not sure how much more effective it is, but I feel better listening to it. My voice is calmer, but hopefully not boring. 
overall, it's like I feel more centered. I sound more like myself rather than myself pretending to be a public radio host. Of course, it's not just about what potential journalists face. It's also about the audience and the mission of public radio. Different hosts with different voices tell different kinds of stories. And vocal styles communicate important dimensions of human experience. What are we missing out on by not hearing the full range of those voices? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. My wife and I spent some time in Ferguson, Missouri in August and November of 2014. I was standing on the block where Darren Wilson killed Michael Brown. And I asked one young man why he thought there had been such an uprising in Ferguson. He reminded me that Michael Brown's body had laid in the street for four and a half hours before being picked up. Of course, I had heard this before in the news, but this young brother made me feel it. No one was there to translate. Instead, he carefully told the story his own way. I felt the weight of Michael Brown's body and the weight of so many other young lives in this young man's voice. So what do we do? We really have to think about who is the public in public media. The demographics of race and ethnicity are changing in the United States. The sound of public media must reflect that diversity. So get on it. It's time to make moves. So that was me wrestling with voices, right? And again, I'm not dismissing this piece and you know, I'm, I'm proud of it, but the language of voices is tricky, right? When everything just becomes about voices, right? Um, because there are structures underneath the voices. And, it, and one, of the ways, one of the things we get into is at that cultural level, we see this whole issue of diversity and inclusion, and we start to begin to understand why diversity and inclusion, like the, the conferences I, I've been hearing about and interested in talk about decolonization. The question is, what are we diversifying, right? What are we, that's the question you gotta ask. What are we really diversifying? Because if we're diversifying an incredibly oppressive structure and putting lots, making sure that at every level of that oppressive structure, there's just like, a lot of people of color and some queer folks, right, helping to administrate the oppressive structure, right? I don't know if that's what we want, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I'm, I'm gonna be careful because I'm, I'm let me duck before I say this, but like I'm all, I'm all excited about, like I'm excited to see Beyonce get wins, but I also am interested in like what Beyonce's line, like the low line people that work with her, what's up with them, right? All these black CEOs and black, all these other things. So diversity and the cultural level gets that part of it, but there is a way, and, and, and all of us who are, who are people of color or women know that you have been invited into places, right? So that your presence and your success can actually be used against the masses of your people. This is something the critical race scholar Derek Bell said. He said, be, you will be used against the masses of your people. And you need to wake up every day, look in the mirror and ask that. Anyway, so cultural has some pitfalls. There's deeper levels. And we gotta get to his history, as Sonia said, we gotta get to economic practices, and we gotta get to laws. I was actually having a conversation with some people at lunch today, and we were talking about like editors and how important they are, and how some of like the worst kind of most sexist behavior we've gotten is from women editors. I don't know if that's true for any of you, but I think that's a thing that can happen. And that's exactly the problem with diversity in name only. Right, when you diversify a newsroom, which we need to do. Please don't stop doing that also. Yo, yes, yes, more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. More diversity. <laughs> and more editors of color. But that's not enough, right? Because if the system is flawed and fractured, then the things that happen in the system, will, I mean, th th that is the ultimate control, right? That is, that is the, the hyperstructure. That is the scaffolding.
we need to go further. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit now, about how to go further in storytelling and in rigorous analysis, how to apply that from, again, 45 seconds to four minutes to 45 minutes. We should be doing this in all of our stories. We should be doing it in all our stories. And so on that note, I mean, one of the structural things we got to push back on is time, right? And Sam Sanders made this point, right? I'm, I'll butcher the quote, but like if all, everything's breaking all the time, then we're broken. I see that as very resonant with what we're talking about. Because if you want to get to those structural layers, right, those deeper historical layers and back away from the shackles of urgency, then you have to have time to report. So we all know that these kind of stories are, 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 have to do with like who's running the funding and the funding structures in a 24-hour news cycle. We know why it is, right? It ain't like all of a sudden all journalists just woke up and said, I want to stop doing deep investigative stuff. That wasn't us, right? That was someone else's demand for relentless content. Um, so I want to shout that out. Um, Stan Alcorn was talking about um, just the importance of, you know, like the story structure. And he said, don't just fact check your, he said, okay, let me get this right. He said, don't just fact check your story, fact check your analysis, right? Every story delivers an analysis. It makes a commentary about how power is working. Right? So you got to actually say, ultimately, what is the point of this? Right? And it's, that's hard. As on civil, I think a lot of times on civil and stuff I've worked on, we don't get it right because you have to get in. It, this is a lot of stuff is down in the weeds. You're revising. You're looking at sentences and words and moments and the stuff clear. And you can lose sight of what the analysis being delivered is. Right? So I think that's, I want to shout that out. So just thinking critically about this both sides thing, you know, and all that kind of, you know, that we know how much, I mean, again, multiple perspectives, I'm here for that. But yeah, you know, we know the violence that's been done under the both sides mantra, right? Both sides can become whataboutism, right? And it, it tends to. And I, you know the old mantra, like, if somebody says it's raining outside and somebody else says it isn't, you don't interview both of them and put them on the radio. You go outside to, say if it's, to see if it's raining. We want to add to that, and you find out why it's raining, right? And I know that does take time, but it also takes some tools some kind of structural analysis tools, which we are hoping to kind of give you some framework for. The other thing that I, I wanted to kind of point out, which we didn't mention, was, because I, I went to, I wanted to, uh, I went to the true crime panel yesterday, and I thought they had a great thing that they said, which we want to be storytellers, not story takers, which is incredibly powerful. And they also talked about systems in some of the clips they played. I haven't heard Finding Clear yet, but they talked about systems. And I thought that was really, really powerful stuff, because true crime, which is, as we know, the genre of podcasts right now, it can seem a bit like it's about, you know, systems, right? Like, it can seem a bit like it's about cultures, like it's about the, literally the criminal justice system. But oftentimes, a story that is about one thing that has happened will actually fall within the realm of the personal, right, or the cultural, because it will be about an exceptional thing that happened. And the problem with exceptional things, as you put so way, is the sort of the deniability that that's happening over there. Right, it, absolutely. It's like this fallacy of deviance. So again, Bell Hooks, the incredible feminist scholar, one time talked about this, this situation where she said white feminists would come to her and say, hey, don't you want to come talk about the toxic misogyny in hip hop music? And Bell Hooks would say, yes. It's important to note that she said yes. She said, however, I don't want to talk about it the way you want me to talk about it. You want me to talk about it as deviant, whereas I want to talk about it as reflective. 
And I think that with all the true crime stories, it's so difficult because there's just so much, I mean, shout, first of all, anybody who's worked on crime, shout out and applause for all the beautiful, no applause for the true crime stuff? Oh, I mean, that's hard work. <laughs> yeah. But what I'm saying is, the question I'm asking when I listen is, because when we pitch, we have to find exceptional stories, right? You know that pitch game, I just came out the pitch panel. You know, that's the, people, that's the question people ask you. What's different about this? I have a story about an average Joe. Will you pay me for it? <laughs> so the question I ask is, are we painting this system like this is an exceptionally egregious system that is a deviation from our normal system? Because when we, when we create that impression, then in a way we're kind of saying like our normal system is all right and we get into these fallacies of restoration and make America great again. If only we could make our justice system great again not like this one. So I think the challenge that I'm always dealing with is how in my stories when I'm navigating this, and again, this comes down to these moments, having this in mind in these tiny moments of revision, right, in these edits and sessions with people, like just asking this question, I always have this in my mind, and you know, um, about that, that, that deviance thing, right? And yeah, I, I, like, I mean, it is absolutely important to say true crime is amazing. I don't wanna, I don't wanna just at all, I listen to it, it's, it's, it's really addictive. Um, but we do need to get to that sort of deeper level, right, of looking at structures. And um, one of the things that we wanted to kind of point out is that, like, as a storyteller, we think about collecting facts, right? As, as journalists, we think about collecting facts. Facts are important. They matter. Getting things right matters. But the choices we make with those facts, which ones we deploy, who we choose, you know, to, to be in our stories, who gets to speak, who, what, what we have them say, all of those Choices are really important. I want to give an example. I was uh, reporting on the murder of a young woman, a young 18-year-old woman named Nia Wilson on a BART platform in Oakland this summer. And I was doing a 45-second spot about the charges that were brought against the white man who stabbed her and killed her. Um, and I wrote up in that, my initial draft, that she was black, she was a young black woman, and he was white. But there wasn't enough time because my editor wanted to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, what was happening with the charges. And so I had to fight and say, I don't feel comfortable putting this on the air without mentioning what I think is a key part of the story. And so we face moments like that where we have to kind of fight for things that we think are important that other people that maybe editors, especially breaking news editors, don't think are important. And sometimes it's banging your head against a brick wall, but it is a very worthy fight. There was a moment we had in uh, Uncivil that I'll share without trying to out anybody, where we were talking about, we had a, we had a show about ladies, women soldiers in the Civil War. Um, and the person who was, wrote a line and that was basically saying like, talking about a particular character, this woman was a real soldier. She wasn't just, you know, like a nurse or something like that. And it wasn't quite that harsh, but it was something like that. And the reason why this person phrased it that way was because they are from the South and they're used to like these like, you know, male friends who would just kind of like do this thing that often happens with, with patriarchy where they're just like, yeah, women say they want equality, but when it comes to the hard stuff, where are they at, right? Which of course, if you know anything about women in the military, that's not, that's just in life in general, it's, it's not, that's, that's, you know, BS. But so I understood why the person wanted to say, have that line in there, like to show like these women in the Civil War were like doing the hardest, gun-bearing work, quote-unquote, hardest work, but that was what, exactly what I stuck on. I was like, that ranking of what kind of work on the battlefield is important, right, is, is like, 
you know, not acceptable, right? Especially because the nurses were actually more important than anybody else in the Civil War. Most people in the Civil War died because of gangrene and all that kind of stuff, right? They didn't die in these glorious bullet ways. And just that whole idea about gender and work. Now, mind you, this was early on in my career before I understood that journalists only understand what's the new writing. So I was like waxing real academic. I was like, yeah, guys, it's like gender ranking and roles. And it's like, you guys gotta read like, you know, this is, you know, you gotta read like some Judith Butler. I mean, this is, this line is all, and, what is the sentence change to fix this? <laughs> right? But you know, I mean, that was a moment where I had these different things. And in other words, in trying to make this what I thought was a political, one political intervention, we're always reflecting on deeper structures. <laughs> Every knitting needle uh, is a sword if you carry it right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. <laughs> so, um, I want to kind of give another example, and I'm going to call out NPR right now. So I don't know if you were listening to the Kavanaugh hearings last week. And a lot of people noted the way in which um, Anita Hill was talked about in, in, in the way that uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was talked about is more believable. And obviously, we know that there are coded ways in which that actually means something. And I think as journalists, we should say what those things mean and not and really question coded language, because coded language is not objective language, right? And, and as our job is to be objective, let's truly be objective. But you know, that stuff, that bothered me, bothered a lot of people, but that wasn't what bothered me the most. What bothered me the most was when Nina Totenberg said, well, but this hearing, this confirmation hearing, it isn't about race, thank God. That is not objectively true. And as journalists, it's really important for us to consider what is objectively true, which is that race is a construct, and everything is about race. I'm a race and ethnicity reporter, but I cover everything, because that should be the framework of all stations. That should be the basis. There shouldn't be race, ethnicity, and identity reporters. All stories are about that. And so we need to really question our assumptions of what objective facts are. This is not to say we shouldn't be objective. I'm a reporter. I believe in truth. I just think what we've called objective truth isn't objective truth. A hundred percent. You know, I mean, because, again, so much violence has been done using the professional language of objectivity, right? You know, so many voices have been silenced, saying, well, that's not objective. You don't have both sides. You're not getting enough perspectives. So this has made someone like myself almost at different times want to like get rid of objectivity, right? Or even like I couldn't have made the kind of podcast I make under the professional understanding of objectivity, right? However, this current era we're in politically has made me really come back to value objectivity. I don't know that I would say we have to recuperate it because I don't know that we ever had it per se, but there are, to me, there is some facts and we have to at least operate as though there's some kind of actual, you know, a truth out here that we can be gotten to. But the other thing I know is I teach journalism and media studies, and I see that in a lot of journalism programs, when students get to my class or certain classes, that's the first time they may have had critical disability theory and critical disability studies. It's the first time. You can go through your whole education. They, ha they haven't really read. I mean, they're like, oh, socialism is kind of like, I get it. We don't like rich people or something. You know, they have not read any of the first documents or deep study that has been done in that tradition. They haven't read any radical feminist theory. They haven't read any radical queer theory. And I just want to say, if you, now mind you, no one feels more deficient in my knowledge of these things than me. I'm always in an ongoing 
deficit and hunger and curiosity and that quest for knowledge. But if, you, if we as journalists aren't literate with those things, I'm not saying you have to agree. I'm not here to tell people they got to agree with. If you ain't literate with those things I just mentioned, you're not equipped to figure out what's objective. And we're not equipped to do our jobs. You know, and that's, and, and, and like, you know, this, it's funny because somebody, it's funny, I, was, I was at a panel earlier today and someone said, someone asked, and it was a good question, if I'm, a, if I'm in a group of, white, if I have an all white journalism unit and we have to report on race, what do we do? And somebody, you know, of course the first answer is, why do you have an all white unit, right? Like fix that is the number one question, number one issue. But I also thought about this, a lot of, so much of the ill critical race theory that I start, like whiteness studies, there's a lot of white scholars in there who are, who, are, who are doing that. There's so much you could learn. You as a white person can become an expert in those things. I don't, I don't, I don't think biology determines what you can become an expert in. You know what I mean? I mean, I listen to people of color and marginalized people to hear what we have to say because we do carry certain knowledges, women carry certain knowledges, but that don't make you an expert. You gotta study, you know, and so, to figure out what objectivity is. And I think our, our objectivity is a better objectivity. I think that the kind of stories, when you listen to Code Switch's story, for example, because I want to give some examples of people that got this right. Code Switch did a story called The Other Storm on Puerto Rico by Adrian. Adrian Florido, who I worked with at KBS, and it's an amazing reporter. Before the break, we met Lesali Oyola Rivera. She's a student at the University of Puerto Rico. Tuition there went up, and she can't afford it. And she blames something called the Fiscal Control Board. Adrian, what is that? Well, technically, the name is the Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico. I don't think it's. I don't think that story is good because. It's radical. I think it's good because it's objectively a better explanation of the situation. You know what I mean? I, when, I, when I listen to the story that the Daily did on the sexual harassment in the Ford plant, right? Dealing with the personal, but then zooming it out to the structural and economic and political. That's a better objective explanation of the situation than some of these other stories that don't hit all those levels. Let me calm down. I, you know, I start yelling. <laughs> Barbershop boat. <laughs> No, I don't want you to calm down. Um, we don't have to give up storytelling to tell structural stories. They can still be really personal, really gut-punching, really powerful. But maybe we need to reframe the way we think about things. And for example, while we're telling stories about people, we're always telling stories about systems. And sometimes the system is your character. When you tell a story about a young child, right, you're telling a story about the education system. And so can we reframe our thinking just a little bit to think about the system that we're talking about? And even just small thought tweaks like that, along with informing yourself, if he feels inadequate in what he's read and studied, you don't even want to think how I feel. Now, and I also want to just stress that, like, I think some stories are going to inevitably lean way more personal, and that's fine. They, they inevitably might lean cultural at different places, right, and structural. You can, and they start all these different places, right? Sometimes you start here and go out. Sometimes you start here and you decide you want to go in. That's all good. But it's just about thinking about how, what commentary are we making and doing it in that way. And understanding that there is an invisible structure beneath us and thinking about the challenges as storytellers of actually illuminating that invisible structure. If it's written in invisible ink, we are the black light, right? And we can, we can make that shine. Um, we wanted to talk about a couple other 
solutions. Yeah, well, I mean, this example, this is like a snippet from the intro of Seeing White. What I think was interesting about this is that, you know, typically we start out with, with a character, right? And, you know, the, the initial problems that we pose are very close to that character, right? Which is, I think, a great narrative device because it, it draws us in and helps people to follow what's going on. And then we get bigger. But sometimes the bigger problems that we get don't actually hit the structural. So what John did, he set up the mission of seeing white in a way that I think, in ways I think that one of the best things that he did was this right here. Because once he set up the mission, he gave himself permission to go at it and ask these deeper questions. I'm John Bewin, it's Seen on Radio. The race beat in American journalism usually involves pointing our gaze and our cameras and microphones at people of color. That goes for me, too. Over several decades as a reporter and documentary maker, I've told the stories of black folk from Chicago to the Mississippi Delta, Latinos from North Carolina to the apple orchards of Washington State, Native Americans from the Navajo Nation in the Southwest to Ojibwe country up north. I'm proud of a lot of that work, but if I think about how I built those stories, I've often treated whiteness like the proverbial elephant in the room. You might hear about some white individuals or white-run institutions, the alleged bad apples, the discriminators. But like most American reporters, I've usually left white people as a group, the white race, unnamed. In the coming batch of episodes, a series we call Seeing White, turning the lens around, looking straight at white America and at the notion of whiteness itself. Where did this idea of a white race come from? God? Nature? Or is it man-made? And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? How has the meaning of white changed over the centuries, and how does it function now? No, but I mean, that shows you that if you are a white journalist, you don't have to not talk about race, right? If you look at structural analysis, you can, you can do that. And we can think differently because we're not thinking about one thing in one category and one thing in another. We're understanding that we're all part of the system. We do want to offer you a couple more solutions because we're not just here to kind of tell you how terrible things are. Find the system in your story, right? That's something you can identify that right off the bat. And that way, you're no, you're, you'll know what you're talking about. That will change the way you can think. It's changed the way I think about my stories almost entirely. This, this is an idea that you actually, I want you to talk about it because you, you, you kind of gave me this idea of, of doing this power narrative edit or check-in as part of the editing process. Not just part, like at the beginning of the process, find the system in your story, but at the end of the process, how do you go about checking yourself, right, basically? Right. Well, like from listening to podcasts that I think get this right, like American Suburb and like so much of the other good work. Also, there's a, there's a good podcast. I, I want to shout out a lot of examples, but there's one called The Secret Life of Canada. Everybody ever listen to that? It's a dope podcast. That's like the uncivil of Canada, but or we're the secret life of Canada of America or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, listening to stuff like that, one thing that we forged to like at Uncivil was this space where at a certain point in the edit process, we would say essentially, what is this story ultimately saying about power, right? Because, and the reason why we have to do that is because we do, in a way, let our characters lead and let the story be organic and go where the story needs to go. So there is a certain way in which we submit to the story because otherwise it'll just be ham-fisted propaganda that I would make. Um, but, the, but the reality of it is, is at a certain point, even in that process where you're letting the story lead and doing what's gonna work, we would stop and go, what, 
What do we think this is saying about these larger systems at this point? And just having that check-in is a really important moment. It might result in like a sentence being different, a couple of words being different. You know, it's not like you got to change the whole structure of your story. It might add into you looking for a different piece of tape, you putting in some archival or just how you end it, you know, but it's like, it makes a huge difference. And it's those little changes that, you know, that, that sentence or that phrase might be the thing that rings in somebody's ears and transforms them. And I, just, I, I wanna be clear because we really wanna unleash the power of narrative. I don't wanna sound like we're beating up on narrative, right? So, yeah. Narrative is everything to me and so it's how to make it better. So we started this off by saying all stories are stories about power. What is the power dynamic in your story? That was All Stories Are Stories About Power, a session from the 2018 Third Coast Conference, featuring Chenjirai Kumanika of the podcasts Uncivil and Seeing White, and Sanja Dirks, a reporter focusing on equity, identity, and culture at KQED in San Francisco. To hear more sessions presented by some of the greatest in radio and podcasting, subscribe to the Third Coast Pocket Conference on your podcast app of choice. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough.